Welcome to series two of the BAPO podcasts. To celebrate the fact that we're on the road in Sheffield with this one, the BAPO brass band, assisted by the dog, are playing the Largo from Vorjak's New World Symphony. We've come to the house of Neil Bateman, a future president of BAPO and a former secretary, to discuss what I think is probably underestimated in its importance when we teach and we do meetings, and that's the technique of actually examining children in outpatients. So welcome again to the BAPO podcast. This time we've come to Sheffield, so we're once again on the road. And I'd like to say that I have got the cream of the country's ENT surgeons uh, here to discuss ENT with you. But unfortunately I can't. I've got... No, this is a f- joke. Let's start again. I'm very pleased to say that I've got three of the country's top ENT surgeons with me. I'm the legendary David Albert from Great Ormond Street and previous guests Mike Quo from Birmingham and Neil Bateman from Neil Bateman from Manchester Children's Hospital. We're actually in Neil's kitchen, so excuse the slightly echoey sound. Dave, welcome. Thank you. Mike, welcome. Thank you. And Neil, welcome. And welcome. Thank you. And we're going to talk about the outpatient assessment of the child in an ENT clinic, basically, what you do, how you do it. So we'll start off with you, Dave. The first thing that happens is they, mum, dad, child, come into the room. I usually say hello to the parents and start talking to them, but what do you do? So before that... Before they even come into the room. Before that, I think you have to make certain that you're bringing them into a suitable environment. And that, I think, is a really key part of this. How you set out your room so that you haven't got your back to them... And with computers and all these things, it's quite difficult to, to arrange that. So you have to arrange your room in, in a suitable way so that you're actually looking at the parents. And there's a space for the child to sit separately and perhaps in pre-COVID days have some toys. Then I usually will go out to the waiting room and collect the child myself. And I actually spend that time looking at the child playing before, if it's a new patient, just to see the interaction between the child and the parent. Bring them in and explain to the child, come and have a look at some toys or whatever else. So it's a positive experience. Sit down, get the child relaxed and settled before I start even thinking about the consultation. Because once the child is relaxed and has been dealt with, then you can start extracting information from the parent. Mike, do you know anything different to that? I agree with that. I think um, my teacher taught me to go out to the waiting room to get the patient and of course if it's a follow-up patient you should know what your patient looks like and you can actually just go up to the patient and bring them into the room and I think that sort of it makes a huge difference in establishing the rapport with both the with both the child and the parent I think that's really important and I agree with what what David said although you know post-covid you know it is more difficult because your room smells of Clinel wipes, which isn't nearly as <laughs> nearly as conducive as it used to be. Neil, what do you do? So I'm the same. I, I have to say that I, I'm a big believer in talking to the child. I'm a big believer in making my first contact or my my first sort of conversational gambit is to introduce myself to to the child before the parents, and I will very often ask the child what they're there for. Or I'll, or I'll say to the child, oh, you're here with your ears, is that right? 
Uh, and uh, I think sometimes you can see a note of panic when this conversation goes on a little while in the parents that they think I'm going to just take a history from the child and not listen to them. And I have to reassure them I will speak to them in a moment. But I, I really like the idea of engaging with the child so that when you come to examine them, they're at their ease and they are and they don't think that you're a big, scary man. Mike. Interestingly, Neil, do, do you sometimes find that parents actually interrupt you and say, sort of, you know, because they're not used to it, so, why are you talking to my Yeah, daughter? no, no, I don't. And I'm very often saying, yeah, don't worry, I will talk yeah, yeah. to you in a moment. Don't worry. It's, they think you're a bit crazy. Yeah, exactly. Because they've never I, encountered this before. Yeah, yeah. I must admit, I think you've clearly given this considerably more thought than I ever have. <laughs> I, I quite like to go and get the child from the waiting room because I don't like sitting on my backside for three hours. I like the exercise. And it's quite nice to see the child walking in. Sometimes, I must admit, I find it slightly frustrating when it's a child who's only just learned to walk and the parents insist on allowing it to walk 50 metres up the corridor, which takes about half an hour. But I try not to let it show. Um, <laughs> Go back to Dave. History taking depends on the age of the child, doesn't it? You can get useful information from a child. Sometimes you clearly aren't going to get anything and you just have fun talking to them instead. Is there anything special you do about history taking? Well, the older children I saw, so, so you've come to see me about your knees, is it? Mm. You know, they kind of go, no, 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 doctor, it's about my, my ears. I was like, oh, really? So then what's wrong with it? You've got mm. too many of them. So you kind of goof around with them a bit and try mm. and mm. extract from them actually what the problem is because it's often very different, their perception of what the problem is and what the parents think. And actually, they are your parent, patient, not the parents. I'm completely. I mean, that's absolutely the case, isn't it? The parents think that they're there for something completely different. Yeah. Sometimes the parents are right. <laughs> you know, the child just randomly has thought it's got earache on the bus on the way there. Uh, and the parents are actually there to talk about its subglottic stenosis. How much detail do you go into in past medical history and stuff? I suppose it depends how much time you've got. Well, I think if we're, if we're lucky, we get a good referral. And I think in tertiary uh, centres, you do get that. So you've got complicated medical history. But I think it's just slightly as an aside, I think time spent, what I call prepping a clinic, which is going through a whole clinic a day or two before and writing notes means that, you know, if they need a special investigation or geometry or something like that, it's everything's all set up. But it also means that when they arrive, you're not... We have electronic records, but, you know, if you've got physical records, you're not flipping through the notes. You can actually talk to the patient straight away. Right. Do you have entirely electronic notes yeah. in your room now? You, you both do as well, yeah. don't you? I, I must have found it awkward because usually the desk is set up so that you're either looking at the computer screen or the parents, and they're about 180 degrees apart, which is much different to the old-fashioned mm. paper notes where you're sitting looking at the desk and you're almost that's, the same yeah. line of sight. That's my point. Is yeah. That is changeable. You know, you, it's up to you to make certain you change that because it's really, I think it's really important. What I must one thing I do do is I like to have a swivelly stool for the child to sit on because they almost universally, their eyes light up when they can see something that swivels that they can whiz around. And the parents always get cross that they're swivelling around and around. Of course, I'm completely immune to it because every single child does it and it keeps them relatively happy. And actually, when you're examining a child, if they're on a swivelly chair, it's a damn sight more mm. easy oh, to right. examine them. So I've always liked to have a swivelly chair for the child. Right, Mike. They uh, just going back to what you were saying, you know, it's said that sometimes, you know, what the parent perceives to be the problem is different from the child's. Hmm. Um, what's really even more complicated sometimes is that 
what one parent thinks the problem with a child is different from what the other parent thinks is the problem with the child. And and that actually, you know, probably that uh, comes out more when you're discussing what your options are. And I think you'll discuss that. But I mean, sometimes one parent is clearly in favour of one option Mm. and the other parent's in favour of another and the child's in favour of first. (laughs) That just as, you know, people always say, you know, in paediatrics, you don't have one patient, you actually have three so mike obviously covid we really tend to just have one parent with the mm. child but pre-covid i remember clinics where half the extended family would be wheeled in you'd have mm. five adults in the room and two siblings do you ever say no i'm sorry this isn't happening or no. you you just let as I many like in it. you like I quite it like it yes oh. i actually quite like it okay uh, i find it hard i i Two parents is fine, but what I don't like is then being bombarded by questions by one relative at a turn, and you just feel like you're you're sort of slightly outnumbered, ah, particularly I, if it's I, slightly contentious. Ah, I, I, I'm sorry, I misunderstood yeah. you. I meant the other siblings are in mind. Siblings are in mind. Yeah, I, yeah. I don't mind. I don't like uncles and aunts. Yeah. too many of those. You know? Do you ever draw a line and say, "Sorry, there's not enough space"? It rarely happens. I think I think it rarely happens. And I think in COVID times, we're we're being told one parent yeah, and then yeah. I will I will very often say I oh, know two is fine but I think yeah. I, I think I, I don't think I'd ever be asked a question can a bunch of uncles aunts and grandparents yeah. also come yeah but I remember that at GOS some huge families coming into clinic in GOS once or twice what do you do do you like having lots of rallies in or? it's unusual <laughs> yeah. and, uh, you know there, there are some groups where there, there is a huge family presence and it's usually best just to go with it I'm afraid should we move on to examining the child? Neil, two-year-old child comes in. It has immediately looked at you, Mr. Bateman, and screamed. And the mother has dragged it in and it's still squawking yeah. and you want to look at it. Yeah. Is there anything special you do? You... I mean, it's clearly got its head screwed on. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I understand. It happens most of the time. Yeah. So I think clearly you want to examine ears, nose and throat if you can. And I think I, my first gambit is to try and talk in terms of, you know, try and have a chat with the child and tell them I'm going to tickle their ears rather than I'm going to look at their ears with the otoscope. If we look at, you know, if we start, if we kick off with ears, actually, the first thing I do with a lot of the kids is I give them the otoscope to hold, which I, you know, maybe I shouldn't be telling my, our, our procurement people this, but I just, I just give them the otoscope and say, you have a hold of that for a bit, uh, just so that it's not some, sort of terrible instrument that they see a nasty man wielding uh, and they can they can feel it and get their head around it and then i mean sometimes sometimes no matter what you do you you just need a cooperative parent to clamp the child so that you can look at their ears and i think that you know sometimes you have to you know hold our hands up and say that's what we need to do but i think actually if i give them the otoscope to hold i talk to them about tickling the ears most of the time i can get a pretty good look. One of the things that always, well, it doesn't really make me laugh, but sometimes you get the parent to clamp their head down against the, the parent's chest. But the parent puts their forearm right across right the ear, knowing yeah. that you're going to examine and it. And, it's, and it's, what's always absolute, what's always really apparent is that the kids who are coming in with really bad recurrent acute otitis media, nine out of ten times the parents just clamp them without even being asked and the right. ear is immediately presented to them. And I often think if they're not able to do that, probably they shouldn't be having grommets because they haven't had their ears examined often enough. <laughs> <laughs> 
I, I, someone once told me, not, not an ENT surgeon, I think it was a pediatrician, said that if you are going to examine a child's ear, what you should do beforehand is just tickle or rub the pinna with your hand. Oh, nice. And it gives the child the idea that their ear is about to be prodded, but that's mm. relatively pain-free, and then it is more relaxed about you putting the, yeah, yeah. the otoscope in. I don't know if you ever I, find I, that. I think, that. I think that's yeah. a good trick. I mean, yeah. uh, my, one of my teachers said, actually, if you just just put, rub their ear ever so gently, you, they, they feel that you're touching them but not hurting them. It gives mm. you a sense mm-hmm. of reassurance. It's not as bad as it, you think it's going to be. Yeah, yeah. but I think one of the things I, I think um, is worth mentioning is that you know we were always taught you know, right from McLeod's clinical examination, you know, the examination in, in, in third year clinical is so you should always examine the good side first. I think sometimes in children, you only get the opportunity yeah. to examine one side. One so, actually, so, right. so actually, uh, I, I think good it's point. a good, it's a good trick actually to examine the side at issue first, even though you may fail the undergraduate exam if you examine the, the side at issue first. In a, in a child, it may be your, your only shot. So actually, if you waste your shot examining the normal side, you may have lost it. So Dave, the child's a bit wriggly. It's not the worst of the world, but it's a bit wriggly and there's wax in the ear. How do you get that out? So I always take a video otoscope of all of my patients is so i will strive to get a proper view which i think is not necessarily the case at all the time and to do that i have to confess i have the luxury of having a nurse on you know available if i if i want someone to help i think what you were talking about which is essentially restraint is fine but i think you do have to be absolutely clear that that's what's happening and you need parental consent you say look mm, mm. you know are you okay if we just hold little johnny uh, for two seconds because we you know, we're trying to be all the games and all the rest of it even what used to be great before covid which was bubbles you know that works for lots mm. of different age groups so yes once you've failed with all of that and you still need to do it you need consent and then i think if it's not just relying on the parent to hold the child i think once you know you, you can be efficient you can clean the air very quickly, and I usually use a headlight and you know various instruments. Well, if you drop some horn prayer or something. No, I've got some very fine little soft hooks and various other things which are available. A little plastic. Some are plastic, and some, there's one which is uh, like a very fine Bart's wax hook. A Bart's wax hook mm. is massive. Yeah, yeah, it's huge. This is about it's a, big a tenth the size. Yeah, this is, we've got some very quite flexible little black plastic ones, yeah. which kids just seem to much prefer to metal but things. Yeah, having a video escape is helpful too because you can show them on the screen. You can mm. show mm. you, you look at mum's ear, dad's ear, whoever happens to be mm. there. But I really try and get ninety nine percent of my kids having a picture. And so I've got 30 years of pictures of ears, mm. pre-grommets, post-grommets, mm, fantastic. development of clostridioma, yeah, yeah. and it's a really useful it's result. Amazing archive. Mike, you've got a two-year-old who doesn't want to have its ears suctioned and it's got wax in its ears. Well, um, I, I always use an otoscope. In fact, when, when Neil was saying the procurement would be upset with the conventional otoscope being touched by the patient, there's... It is only a toy, the uh, conventional otoscope now, because I've reached an age where I can't see uh, sufficiently well through a, a, a conventional otoscope. So I always use a, a Hopkins rod. Mm. Um, and yes, I we I think we must have the same ones as you, the very fine black plastic single-use. Um, so you do it endoscopically? In yeah, the I was, yeah. And actually, interestingly, I used to start doing... I used to... I started doing them endoscopically because... Uh, uh, 
I think Dave Pothier taught me mm, that I right. said before you try and do ear operations, get used to using mm. an endoscope. So for years, I've been using an endoscope in clinic and actually really with the purpose of training myself to remove earwax, remove extruded grommets and stuff in the ear canal. And generally speaking, the parents love it um, and the children love it. And I think it, mm. it works extremely well for me. Um, we don't, um, we're not sophisticated enough to be able to print off um, uh, the, the photographs of the eardrum. So I, what I like to do is um, to, I, I invite the, the parents to take a picture of the screen of the telepack, um, no disclosures here, or whatever monitor you use. And actually it's quite useful, actually. Most parents, for example, as Dave was mentioning about evolution of cholecystoma, you know, most of these patients' parents will come with the whole file in their smartphone and show you, look, this is what it was like three months ago, six months ago, 12 months ago. Of course, I mean, in time, you know, paperless EPR will, will make that much more formal. But you know, until that does, I think giving the parents responsibility for holding the pictures, I think is quite a good, yeah. quite a good tip. Neil, two-year-old, you really want to see the eardrum, but it's full of wax and the child's having a tantrum. I mean, similar to everybody, I'm probably not as aggressive. Not these guys are aggressive, but in terms of enthusiastic <laughs> about removing of wax. And I would tend to either use a microscope with the child sitting up on mum's knee uh, and the similar instruments. I don't mm. use an endoscope to mm. clean children's ears out. We do have those black plastic little wax hooks, mm. which I think, I think suction is really difficult to use in children of that age mm. i think older children scary, tolerate suction mm. much better uh, and it's just about the unpleasant loud noise and and slightly odd sensation do, do any of you have access to ear syringing in clinic? do you use it you do yeah we, all, we use it no all i use is a 10 syringe and a non-fenestrated zona sucker and a nurse and a kidney dish and i use it a lot very good for foreign bodies too I really don't like lying patients down in a microscope when they hate it. Okay. So I do everything. Yeah. We, we, don't, we don't have syringing facilities, actually. But you don't need it. You just need a it, kidney yes. dish, yes. temple syringe, and a, and a non-fenestrated sucker. One of the things um, a, a friend taught me about suctioning kids' ears, which I think has gone down really well, and it was easier because he used to have a foot-controlled suction pump. Mm-hmm. He, he said that one of the things that kids scared about, about is about the noise. Mm-hmm. So he actually, I think, you know, post-COVID, you can't do that now. He used to put the suction tube in between his teeth and he'd just crimp mm. it. And he would put the suction in the ear without it sucking. And as he releases the thing on his teeth, the suction will get gradually louder. Mm. Uh, and actually, I, I don't do that because I don't like putting things in my mouth. But I have a nurse actually just crimp the sucker. And actually, as you release it, it's, it's incredibly effective, actually, because the That's child is, there, is not so scared yeah. having this... Great big this Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> that's very interesting. Okay, um, let's move away from ears then. Um, but before we do, one of the tricks I've learned is that so you, you tickle the ear in a child who's a bit scared, then you look in the ear very gently, even if you don't care what the ears look like because you want to look in the mm. mouth. Because for some reason, toddlers don't mind having their ears examined first, and then they're more likely to let you look in their nose and mouth. If you go straight for the mouth, they just, you know, yeah. they, they bolt. But uh, Neil, so we're going to, we're talking about examining a kid's mouth. Mm. Do you use a tongue depressor? 
I try and avoid using a tongue depressor if at all possible. Mm. And if, if I find I've got a child who hasn't already had people stick tongue depressors in their mouths, life gets very, very much easier because I think you can pretty much see, you know, if I'm seeing a child, I want to see their oropharynx uh, and their tonsils, then most of the time I can see what I need to see without using a tongue depressor. Mm. Uh, and of course, the times when you can't are when a child absolutely refuses to open their mouth. And usually that's because somebody has already stuck a tongue depressor mm. in their mouth. So I try and avoid using a tongue depressor if at all possible. And I, I must I found that wooden ones are preferable to metal ones. Kids oh, just absolutely. hate metal ones. I don't know what it is. So the next step is that you want to look at the tonsils because there's a history of sleep mm. apnea or something. And they won't open their mouth. What do you do next? Well, then that's once again, we're, we're, if, you, if you really want to look in their mouth and you really are in, a, in, in that position and they're refusing, you're then down the, do you restrain them line? And then mm-hmm. do you try and put a tongue depressor in their mouth? And of course, most of the time they're completely clamped their mouth shut. Mm-hmm. So you couldn't get a tongue depressor in if you wanted no, to. No, because that never works. Exactly. I've never, ever seen a parent manage to get a child to open his mouth and no. doesn't want to. They kind of stick their fingers in and exactly. poke around. And, yeah. and it never, ever works. Yeah. Any magic tricks, Dave, when you've got to that stage? Well, again, I've discussed it with the parents and I say to them, look, we'd like to see this. I bet you at home with your wonderful iPhone you yeah. get me a nice picture. And they sometimes send in those fantastic yeah. pictures. Yeah, yes. Yeah. Yeah. The kids are much we, better moved at home. The trouble with assessing tonsillar size when the child's screaming is they tend to be medialised. Mm. So I think you overestimate the size of the tonsils. Mm. But when they're gagging, they, yeah, yeah. the mm. tonsils medialise as well, mm. don't they? Any other special tricks? Well, I have to confess when we're talking about oral examinations, I very old-fashioned. I still use a post-nasal space mirror. Yeah. looking at adenoids and wow. okay if you have a cooperative child which yeah. i think yeah. about 50 percent, i think they find that less intimidating because you can show them it's a mirror yeah and you say we're well, just like the dentist it's going to look at the back of your throat oh, okay because they know about the dentist the dentist mm. uses a mirror doesn't hurt okay well, and i sometimes have gloves on i have gloves on i just put my tongue finger on their tongue Mm. and mm. use the mirror. And it saves fibre optic examination yeah. in the post-nasal space. And the parents go, well, you're talking about you know, doing an adenoid tonsillectomy or something. And how do you know about the adenoid size? And then you're either going to give them an X-ray or you're going to subject them to something which is more intrusive. Gee, I mean, just sort of, this isn't really examination, but do you really need to? Because if a child's got big tonsils and they sound like Darth Vader and they're quite snotty, they're going to have big adenoids really, aren't they? I think the parents like... Okay. In fact, parents uh, ask very good questions. Okay, fair How do you know that the adenoids are large? To say they always are if you've got large tonsils kind of doesn't cut it with some of them. Ah, I mean, it's London patients, you see. <laughs> Absolutely. Well, always I, I, just, I never get that in Manchester. Yeah, so <laughs> I, I must go and see an ophthalmologist because I cannot see no, anything clearly in a postnasal space mirror. So oh, I can yeah. show, well, pretty well, expensive I can show a father over my shoulder. Yeah, my visual resolution isn't sufficient no, to, to tell that. But, no. you know, you were mentioning about uh, metal and tongue and wooden tongue depressors. Now, now that everything is single use, I find a metal tongue depressor very good at misting, actually. Misting is something that I've found that, to be honest, I don't find misting that useful. But you mean when you're checking nasal patients? Correct, yeah. yeah. I don't find it that useful, but it's something that parents can often identify with. 
interestingly, mm-hmm. especially if you flip the other side and let the parents yeah. blow on it and then mm-hmm. you let the child blow on it. It's, it's, some, it's something that's almost in a sort of semi-quantitative way mm-hmm. gives them a, yeah. a, you know... Especially if you've done something like coenal, you know, if you yeah. move off from adenoids, if you've done coenal atresia, yeah. Yeah. the parents always want to yes. see the misting. Yeah, I agree. I can never find a metal tongue depressor. I end up, I end up using a tuning fork for misting most mm. of the time. Well, that's not very COVID safe, is it, Neil? I mean... <laughs> and then it's properly de- 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 decontaminated. <laughs> yeah. So going back to the uncooperative child mouth examination, I've got two things which I use, one of which is a bit unhygienic. And I would, if their teeth are close together, I will put my thumb on the upper teeth and my index finger on the lower teeth and gently prise them apart. And for some reason, children open their mouths when you do that. I don't understand why, they just do. And if you've got a headlight and a tongue depressor on the other hand, you can gently get a look in without too much fuss. I don't understand why they let you do it. And I haven't ever been bitten. Number two is the tonsillectomy position in small children. Head on your Mm, lap with a headlight, feet pointing at the parents, so they're the ones that get booted. And they just, sometimes they cry, and then they open their mouths anyway. Especially when they cry. Yeah, basically. And you you get a pretty good look at their tonsils. Difficult with a 13 year old, but otherwise... (laughs) 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 Not around our woods, it's not. Um, Right, so that's, that's mouth examination, I think. Nose examination. Now, Mike, nose examination in a child. Um, I, we mentioned earlier the, the misting the misting, cold tongue, yeah. uh, spatula. I normally just use them. It's probably the only time I do use a, a normal otoscope is, is to look up the nose. <laughs> I don't think I've, I've ever found anything useful uh, looking in the nose. If I'm looking in, you know, for something specific, I will use a I will use a, a Hopkins rod endoscope. I mean, a rigid uh, Hopkins rod endoscope. Yeah, yeah. In a, in a, a six-year-old. Yeah. Yes, I use that in. I use the same endoscope I use in the ear as I use in the nose. Yeah, 2.7. With local anaesthetic? Generally not. Okay. In my experience, they don't like the spray. So actually, if I need to look something, (laughs) I I will use the endoscope in the ear and then in the the nose. Okay. I mean, I think I agree with Mike entirely. Especially if you can see on the on the screen, you say, "Look, Mm. there's Mm. very little space. All these turbinates completely engorged. So you clearly." need a bit of help, you know, using whatever steroid you're using and how you're using it and come back and we'll have a look next time and see whether things have improved. Okay. I think, That's you know, it's showing... Yeah, a bit of visual reinforcement. Exactly. It's yeah. the visual yeah. feedback. Yeah. I think it's so important. important. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so, yes, I, I use the Mastano thing as a, f- a four millimeter otoscope tip and an otoscope and you, get, you can see yeah. the septum, you can see the terminus and sometimes you can see the anterior face of the adenoids when they're really big and yeah. because it's not very far away and you can see quite a lot. See foreign bodies, you could see polyps if you've got polyps, which you don't see very often. You can see rhinitis. Um, so I think see quite a lot, really. Do you ever use a head mirror, uh, head, headlight rather, with a thudicum speculum? Uh, I can't remember the last time I used a thudicum speculum. Yeah. They normally run away from you when you go. Yeah, that's exactly. It looks a bit weird. It looks weird and it's incredibly uncomfortable. Exactly. Just yeah, they're awful. Not if you get a look up one side, you're not getting a look up the other side. <laughs> yeah. right. Fair enough. We've all been teaching on this course today and we had... Um, Someone was talking about toxic levels of cofenalcane in children, which are lower than I thought. It's something to think about. Um, do you, you use cofenalcane in kids? I do. Yeah, I, 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 suppose I use it, and I've never really thought about toxicity much. But it's not. It's, as far as I know, it's not been a thing. Yeah. I don't use that much. I do. No. Okay. Neil, um, neck examination. Yes. How do you do that? Um, I ask them if they're ticklish, mm-hmm. and I tickle their neck. Uh, mm-hmm. I think the 
It depends very much on the child. Uh, I, the older children, I will do the standard FRCS <clears throat> part three behind them, neck examination. Younger children, I'm, I'm much more kind of freeform about it and will just really get so I can have a feel of their neck as as good as I can. I, I think uh, I, I kind of, I'm slightly agnostic about the asking their ticklish. And sometimes I, I, I do regret doing that because I think they can get a bit suggestible at that stage. And what, the minute you put your, mm. your hands on their neck, they just raise their shoulders up. Hmm. They, you know, do you ticklish. sit in front of them? Maintaining eye contact. You ever stand yeah. behind them like you do in adults? So in, in older children, I will say, you stay there, I'm just going to come behind you, you know, in a in an eight-year-old. Mm. And then I would say that, you know, this is how we examine necks and it might feel a bit, it might seem a bit weird, but that's just the way it is. In in younger children, I'll be in front of them and I'll maintain eye contact. I'm almost always in front of the patient yeah. because I think the children find it very uncomfortable when you yeah, get behind them. Yeah, and, I and they neck, really don't like the And the neck, the neck mm. is just like the ear. I think, you know, I ask if the child where the problem is or the mother or the parents where the, the lump is and I, I go straight for it. It's the sort of thing that will fail you in the fellowship exam but you may just get that one chance. You know, you don't want to start poking around the submental area and then it's level two, three, four, five, six. You just, the problem is there. Just go for it and get what information you can. And if you have a cooperative child and then then you can go back to the, the you know, the, the formal order that you're taught in, in an exam fashion. But I think, you know, mm. again, you need to go for the bit that... That's a really good point, actually, in that often if, if a child is sent in with a net lump, like say they've got a thyroidosal ductus, that's my, once I've established a rapport, that's my first gambit. And and I will say, let me just see what we're up against here and give it a feel and then start saying, okay, so how long have you been there for? And then you've, because you've got all the information you need at that point. And Uh, and in practice, you know, working in, 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 you know, in the UK, 99 times out of 100, you're going to have an ultrasound scan, you know? (laughs) So so actually, you know, you know, seeing a patient in the foothills of the Himalayas, you know. Yeah. I know I know some people consider that bad medicine, but really things when you deal with this sort of thing all the time, it can only be one of about three or four things. And you are going to I I think the less you irritate the child, the better. Mm-hmm. As long as you've got all the information that you need to make your differential diagnosis, it's it's better not to irritate the child, mm-hmm. in my opinion. Going back to your surgical textbook of examination skills from the last century. Do you ever transilluminate anything? Because if you remember, the book said that cystic hygromas are brilliantly transilluminable. But you I never, don't think I don't do it. I'm just, I just it because they're fairly obvious when yeah, they're exactly, yeah, regardless, yeah. aren't they? Yeah. Yeah, exactly. One I thing I do, I do do is photo documentation. So I take the Hopkins rod off the camera and just use the camera as a camera. Mm-hmm. And then I, yeah. because it's all electronic mm-hmm. records. So I then, if I'm going to do a thyroid or something, I've got a picture mm. so the night before I can think, oh, I remember this, this is mm. what's going to be. Or if it's, you know, a bronchiolitis or whatever, you know, where it is. And if, yeah. if you're looking uh, at a lump, you know, this benign cervical nephanopathy, and you can, if you, as you know, as a photographer, if you get the light lead separate from the camera, you can get that sort of lateral illumination so that you yeah. can actually yeah. see the lump. And then you can take another photograph a month or two later and you say, look, it's exactly the same. Yeah. Yeah, I must say, photo documentation is is great. I carry an SLR around, as you know, and I take 
pictures of nearly all the next months I see in clinic and then it immediately upload them to the electronic mm-hmm. record, which you can do. It's a bit slow. Well, I don't say never, but almost never use my phone because I think it looks dodgy. And in terms of patient information security, it's a little bit dodgy too because once it's on your phone, it potentially could go somewhere mm-hmm. else. Yeah. Whereas if you take it from your memory card on your camera straight onto the hospital computer and then delete it off your card then it's you're pretty safe it's a shame because the modern cameras on the phones are they're fantastic yeah better than most of it's a shame what i sometimes as you say is to get the parent to take a photograph i've done that a few times yeah and that actually you get very good quality pictures and increasingly because of covid we're doing telephone clinics so i get parents to email photos and we were probably all doing that great right Dave, the big one. So you've done all of that stuff, but you want to do an endoscopy. Now in Bristol, children are up to the age of, beyond the age of one, they're too big to hold down. And until they're about 18, they won't sit still for an endoscopy. So there's a huge area of uncooperative children. How about you? Would you endoscope every child? Absolutely not. Right. So my colleagues, my colleagues are very keen on nasendoscopy. Mm-hmm. You know, every patient that walks through the clinic, and yeah. I really don't find that it makes a difference to my management. Particularly, I, I, I I'm a not a big nasendoscope because, really, I, like, no. because I have a way of finding, you know, what, what the adenoids are doing, and I think it's quite intrusive. But for vocal cord lesions, mm. um, usually in older children, I actually find that it sometimes less intrusive than oral examination. And what I do is I say mm. the worst thing about this is it's going to taste disgusting. So you um, put local in? I always put local yeah. in. And I say, look, this is disgusting. I'm going to give some to mum, see what she thinks. And she goes, this is disgusting. Mm. So I'm going to have some tea. This is disgusting. We all know it's disgusting. But that's it. That's the worst that's going to happen. Okay. And actually you can get a really, really, you know, because once it's decongested and if you are good at steering, it, it, I think it's a very operator dependent. Mm. You know, if you just push, it hurts. Mm. If you actually guide a scope, so it's different from putting a nasogastric tube in, Mm. because you're actually guiding it away from all the structure. And then you get to the back and say, look, this is going to taste, feel a bit funny just for a second. Okay. You know, because we get lots of singers and those kind of things. Yeah. Yeah. Um, Mike, what would you say? You a big nose endoscope in clinic? Are you talking about voice or are you talking about breathing? Either really. Let's let's say a five year old who's got a horse voice. Five year old boy with a horse voice it, it, who's uh, not very cooperative. You know, what again, do you do there? Again, I have no disclosures to make, but since having the the tip chip two point eight mm. millimeter end, endoscope, I can look at the larynx satisfactorily in fifty percent of six year olds, mm. more than six really. But it makes a huge difference because the tip chip endoscope is bendier, so. But the first thing is smaller, and secondly, it's bendier, which means actually when it goes down the back of the palate, it does, you, did, you somehow don't stimulate the child as much. And, be, and, and it's a beautiful endoscope, and you see extremely well. So I think that is something that's made a huge difference in, in terms of that sort of child. In, in, in terms of the, of, the, of the noisy breather, the noisy breathing baby, I, I know Neil talked about this today, and that he, he finds things on nas- nasendoscopy. I did it on every noisy breathing child for the first 10 years of my consultant career because I was taught to. And sort of not in a formal audit, but I sort of audited in my own mind. I thought, in the last 10 years, how, how frequently have I found something which I hadn't expected? And I thought the answer was almost never. So I rarely, rarely, unless I really smell a rat, I almost never... Um, do a, do an elective 
nasolaryngoscopy now. So we're just going to stop in the middle there because uh, refreshments arrived, uh, as you might have heard. And I'm going to go to the bit of the podcast where I ask our guests what their favourite operation is. We previously asked Mike, and he said coanalotresia. We previously asked Neil, and he said single-stage LTR. So, Dave, what's your favourite operation, for whatever reason? Yeah. Doesn't have to be a so good I think reason. I'm, I'm old enough to, to, to have two. And the first, I think, is the one that makes the biggest impact on a child's life, and that's cochrane implantation. I don't do this anymore for various reasons, but it was the most amazing operation to do because it's relatively straightforward surgery. The outcomes are universally pretty good, and it makes a life-changing, you know, life, life change to that child forevermore. But technically, I think the, the surgery which, you know, I spent most of my time doing was, was laryngeal reconstruction. And I think that whilst you can teach people to do laryngeal reconstruction as a one-off operation, what takes a long time is to learn how to tailor it to the patient. And I think that is more like plastic surgery, which I did a bit of before in a lot of ENT. And I love that side of it. It's, it's using different techniques, different uh, ploys to try and achieve the right results. So the success rate, unfortunately... Laryngeal reconstruction is not as high as your cochlear No, it is <laughs> and that is annoying. Satisfying operation though, because there is a little bit of creativity involved in it, isn't there? You have to carve a graft. I, I really like it for that reason. It's hands on, yeah. We yeah. need nice hands on. Okay, back to the plot, Mike. We were talking about nasendoscopy. You've got a four-year-old in clinic in front of you who's not desperately cooperative and he's hoarse he's been referred in as hoarse and he's quite hoarse this kid you know he's not just a little bit hoarse but he comes in and he sounds like he's on his tenders and so you're gonna what need tenders to... what's that it's a program on the television oh i see okay yeah i know you don't watch the telly and stuff they all talk like this his breathing's it's fine stridulous. well no he's not stridulous but he's really you know he's a bit higher than that he's hoarse yeah no, you presume you want to see his vocal cords. Do, do you? Or would yes. you just say, go away for three months? And... I would. Now, how are you going to do it? Uh, I would try persuade him to let me put in an endoscope. Okay. Uh, I presume the next question is, and if he won't? Yeah, and if he just, you know, I'll if he kicks off. I will talk to the parent, and <laughs> if they're willing to have a quick general anaesthetic, we'll have a microangioscopy. Very quick what are Assuming you the child's fit and well. Yeah, yeah. What are you looking for? Why do you need well, to... Well, I think you're, you're trying to... Ex- Firstly, there are two things. You want to exclude a papilloma. Yeah. Um, although that's less like... You know, it's, it's, it's much more likely the child, especially if the history is compatible with voice overuse, is much more likely to be a vocal fold nodule. Yeah. Then um, I think whichever you find, it's useful. If it's a papilloma, you've discovered something you need to deal with. If it's a nodule... Uh, you give something that's tangible to both the child and the parent and the speech therapist to work on. I agree with that. You've got to see the courts, haven't you? Neil, right, same situation, but the kid's 12 and still not massively cooperative. Yeah, so it depends how not massively cooperative, I think. You know, I I think, once again, I I want to see the courts. I agree with Michael. The history is important, uh, and certainly with all these kids. One of the things that I am, certainly the younger kids I'm interested in, does the voice ever return to normal? Yeah. Because if the does re- if the voice does return to normal, then you can pretty confidently make a diagnosis of vocal overuse. If the vo- if the child is always hoarse, then I think we have to see the cause. And, you know, and uh, the chance of picking up something 
concerning or a papilloma toast, you know, a papilloma is small, but I want to see the cords if the child is coarse. There are significant benefits in seeing, certainly in a 12-year-old, if, if, you can, if they can be cooperative, in seeing the, the, the cords in an awake child because you can get some idea about a phonation pattern. Mm. You, can, you can give the speech therapists some information. If this particular 12-year-old is sufficiently uncooperative and that's not going to happen, then I, once again, I would have the same conversation and they would get a, you know, a, a short general anaesthetic. The, so the reason I asked you about this is that I sometimes go to talks at conferences and people just make out that they effortlessly scope every single child that comes to their voice clinic or whatever. And I just say, well, that just doesn't happen in my world. No, it doesn't happen and in I, my I, world. I, I think... I suspect that it's interesting that um, it's sometimes very unpredictable. Uh, I, I sometimes do voice clinics with a speech therapist. Well, about once a month, I do a, a joint speech, ther- uh, speech therapy clinic, and we almost have a little game as to say, "Do you think we're going to be able to do it?" Actually, my correlation between whether I think the child will let me do it or not, after all these years of doing it, is actually not very good. Sometimes you see a child okay. who's actually very jittery and jumpy. Uh, when sitting down and then you put the camera in his nose and he takes it and sometimes you see someone who is incredibly confident talks to you like a mature grown-up and the moment you even unsheath the microphone he's running out of the room so sometimes it's quite unpredictable but I normally give it a go what do you think kids don't like about nasodoscopy is the thought yeah. Something I think, going up your nose. Uh, yeah, it's, I think it's yeah. a thought. Yeah. And interestingly, um, I think they, in my experience, they hate the anaesthetic sensation of fen- fen- uh, cofenolcaine even okay. more sometimes. So I, I lube up well. And um, okay, I re- I re- okay, you can edit that. I'm not going yeah. to. That's no. <laughs> <laughs> great. That's brilliant. And, and then you do a fiber optic nose. You do a fiber optic nose. That's great. I'll tell you why I ask the question. I have got this thing I do where I put lignocaine spray, you know, the 10% lignocaine spray in the kid's mouth. And this is for, I'd say it's probably for the 5 to 12-year-old group. And then I just get an adult nose endoscope and stick it in their mouth and then just turn it down over their tongue and look through the mouth. And if you don't put lignocaine in the mouth, they gag and retch. Mm. But if you put lignocaine in the mouth and then sit them outside while you see another patient give it a good 10 minutes, you know, their throat goes really numb. And most of the time, that you can get a pretty good look at the vocal cords that way. It's just like doing indirect laryngoscopy with a mirror in the good old days. Good old days. Um, mm. and, and I do that increasing amounts of time. The kids don't like the local anaesthetic, as you say, but it wears off. One thing I think is that we tend to feel that patient has come for one consultation that we have to get an answer then and there. So first of all, I would often, before you get into that on pass, I would say to the parents, look, you know, this is the situation. Why don't you go outside? Have, I'll see another patient. You can chat, you know, even to a four-year-old and see whether that helps. As a timeout sometimes is good. And sometimes coming back on another occasion, sometimes, you know, they have had a terrible journey. It's mm-hmm. all been terrible. But with a bit of preparation, and particularly as the parents know, that the alternative is, as you say, a general anaesthetic. I cannot remember, honestly, the last time I did general anaesthetic endoscopy because I couldn't manage a, a fibre optic exam. I really can't. And I have got a very strong Spanish nurse who's very good at holding the head still. <laughs> <laughs> Which is, you know, but with in a four-year-old, 
Two, you're gonna, if that child is going to be difficult, they're probably going to be difficult when it comes to anaesthesia mm. as well. Yeah, it's a very good so, point, isn't it? Actually, the whole thing of coming into hospital yeah. is going to be much worse yeah. than actually... Actually, mm. if, you're, if you're slick, mm. it's very quick. And particularly, I think, if you have photo documentation, because you don't have to hold the telescope there and in your brain, check this, check this, check that. You take yeah. a shot. They'll take yeah. a short video. Uh, so I, I'm a huge fan of photo documentation. I think that's a really good point because we, uh, you know, we as surgeons tend to sit in the operating theatre and see an asleep child yeah. wheeled in and we get the impression that actually they were asleep, so it didn't bother them. But yeah, actually, when you see what happens in the anaesthetic room, you see what happens in recovery, it's, um, it's not an undistressing experience. Mm. Interesting. I think maybe I need to come and visit you, Mike, because my teacher taught me to do nasendoscopy by definition of bad term, carry out flexible endoscopy through the mouth. Mm-hmm. He was very good at it, but somehow I just, just didn't, couldn't quite get it. I would either see... Yeah the lingual aspect of the epiglottis or something. How have I tried to wiggle it? I watched him, how he did it. I just never got a very good view. It tends to slide across to one side or another. That's yeah. the first thing. And the other thing is it often helps, just like old-fashioned endoscopy, to grab hold of the tongue and hold it with a swab. Um, so yeah. that they can't pull the tongue back into the mouth. But if they're locally anaesthetized and you can slide it right over the midline and you can get an all right, as you say, you only basically try to tell whether they've got nodules or papillomas, and you can tell that in about half a second. Even better if you've got a camera running, as you yeah. said. That's such a great but, but I, 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 I feel a U-chip clip is coming up. Yeah. So. Yeah. 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 I do think it's important to recognise that children find uh, an anaesthetic and an anaesthetised pharynx uncomfortable and, yeah. and an, un, an, an unpleasant experience. So I, don't, I tend to not rely too much, like Michael, I, I, don't, I don't tend to rely too much on local anaesthesia, I think. Yeah, and, and the other thing I, I like about the, the tip-chip camera is that actually quite often a child will grab, grab it. So if you had a very expensive yeah. uh, fiber optic, <laughs> yeah. that's, that's 10,000 yeah, pounds yeah. down the, down the yes. path. But uh, with a tip-chip camera, they can actually grab it and it does no harm to the ah, camera, which makes a huge you. difference. Yeah. Another point in favour of using anaesthesia is if you are going to say to the parents, look, you know, it's either anaesthesia or you know, general anaesthesia or local anaesthesia and a bit of restraint. Most of them go local anaesthesia and a bit of restraint. And if you just restrain them, yeah. they think, oh, this is going to be unpleasant. You yeah. say, look, I have anaesthetitis. It is not yeah. going to hurt. It's just slightly scary. Hmm. But there are lots of things that kids have to have that are slightly scary, like having a nasogastric tube, like having a drip put in, mm-hmm. um, you know, all of which, you know, particularly if they come and have an anaesthetic, they have to have a lot of things that they're not going to enjoy. <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah. You know, being starved for six hours. Someone's just put crisps on the table. I can't stop myself. Sorry. Laser endoscopy, that's fantastic. Don't, don't wait, that's fine for you. Is there anything else we need to talk about? Oh, do any of you ever do final aspiration of lumps in children? I do not. One of my head and neck colleagues does, and he has actually, you know, in, in conjunction with our, our pathology, our histopathologist colleagues, uh, he, he, he does do uh, FNA, but I'm not, it's, it's not something. Yeah, I mean, actually. I'm, I'm not a fan, um, and I think, I think there are lots of variables here when you have a discussion like this. I think the variables of the child. And for those who tend to know, I'm Chinese. And Chinese parents are a little bit more, I'm trying to find the correct word. Robust. Robust with, with <laughs> their children. You know, that's, that's and true. it's a matter of, 
It's very interesting. I remember some years ago, there was a automatic a grommet dispenser. I don't know if you guys remember. Yeah. Oh, yeah. And the, you know, the Singaporeans had brought something out. In my experience of my patients in Birmingham, there's absolutely no way a child will let you fire a gun with a grommet. Because, or at least if they fire on one side, they're not going to let you fire it on the other side. <laughs> so in a way, it's a sort of expectation. Uh, and I think, you know, and if you lose the trust of the child, they're never going to trust you again. So you, you persuade the child you're not going to hurt the child. Hmm. And they get hurt, regardless of whether you've done anything you think is inappropriately aggressive, you know, surgically. It once the expectation of the child doesn't match what you do to the child, yeah, you've, so it, you've it, lost it. That that's you've lost it forever. I think, it, so and that brings me on to a real bugbear of mine is that when you're about to do something unpleasant, and the parents or someone else in the room, like a nurse, says. This won't hurt. Yeah. I absolutely yeah. hate it because actually, Honestly. you kind of want to say this might hurt a bit, but Honestly. you know, whatever. It's you know, you other things hurt more. You, you, if you can yeah. kind of get a child to buy into the fact that it isn't going to be great, but it won't be that bad. Yeah. Um, as you say, it's not going to hurt. Then, as you say, no more trust ever. Yeah, yeah completely. Good. Just uh, probably last of all, I remember in France uh, seeing them uh, sort of restraining small children and doing myngotomies awake. And I remember hearing about a thing called the papoose, which the Americans, the Americans are quite keen on. Do so they still yeah. use it? They still use it, and I think it's child abuse. So for those listeners that don't know what the papoose is, it's basically holding, you know, restraining a child, uh, maybe a two-year-old child, and, and putting grommets in, yeah. I, I think. Well, is, so is, it's, like, it's like a board, isn't it? Yeah. With, with, it's, with, like, it's like a straitjacket around a board. Yeah. Um, I, 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 I feel it's culturally not in line with... The, the British practice, and I, I don't do it. I, it I don't it's not. Like, I, I see. I'm very surprised the Americans do it because it doesn't weigh with my image of the way practice is in this case. <clears> they are, you know. You, but but they, they do, and I know they do in France. And I I watched the for some French in Paris doing a muringotomy and under uh, uh, nitrous oxide, which I don't think the nitrous oxide achieved a great deal. The thing that mattered was the big nurse holding the child down while they did a myringotomy, but I am not in favour of that and stuff at all. And the thing about myringotomy is it's incredibly stimulating. Yeah, it's, it's incredibly really painful. Really painful. painful. Under general yeah. anaesthesia, yeah. you know, we all know from putting grommets in that you'll have a child who's to all intents and purposes asleep until you do a myringotomy when they'll start to wake up. And I think it's, it's an incredibly painful procedure. Okay. Dave... You've got a point you want to raise. Yeah, I think before we, we do sort of close this, I think we've discussed in a lot of detail how to get on, you know, get the child on board. We've discussed bringing the parent on board. We've discussed how to examine the child. But I think that once you've got to that point, I think a really key thing with a lot of paediatric ENT is that there isn't one answer. And I think if you present from your analysis that there is a solution. The parents then decide that they don't like it. You're really uh, up a cul-de-sac. So I have usually a piece of paper where on one third I will have the history, the middle third I'll have what we found on examination, and on the third, on the right-hand side, I will go through the options. And included in that will be, for instance, you know, if you're going to do surgery or you know, thyroidal diagnosis, it might have some of the complications. If you're going to put grommets in or something, it'll talk about some of the key points. And I give them, the parents, that piece of paper, which has got the history, the examination, and the options, and any surgical you know, pros and cons, to take away. And I've got a copy of it as well. And for me, that has saved me 
so many mm. times. Mm. And it, they, because we all know you go to the doctor and you don't remember as much as you hope yeah. you can. Yeah. And at the, okay, you put it in the letter, but this is something they, that you've worked on together. And to give them that, it's one of the one tip I think that I would. Uh, uh, mm. Having received, you know, or having had some patients I've sent to you and you've written back, that is something really worth learning. Actually, that's one of the problems I've had with EPR is actually it doesn't quite have the technology allowed to draw. I mean, the pictures that uh, Dave gives, I've, I've got some of them that, you know, patient I've sent him, he's sent them back to me. The patients come back with this great drawing of the ear or the throat. And it, it's the parents almost inevitably say, invariably say, that was really useful. And I think that that is something that, EPR designers should uh, mm, yeah. really yeah, uh, really. build into the. Um, I the draw a lot system. of cartoons for yes. parents. Cartoons are fantastic. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Brilliant. Anybody got anything else they need to raise? I just think it is yeah. really important that Dave talks about discussing options. I, you oh, know, I think yeah. I, I I would just absolutely second that. I think it's really important that when we see children, even with what we would regard as the most routine problem, that we talk through everything that we could do for them. And then, and, and and I think parents really appreciate being put in the driving seat there in terms of how they're going to move forward with their child. The other thing I say to them is, I could get this decision wrong either way. I could say to you, on balance, I think you should have surgery, and they don't, and the child gets better, and they say, oh, I went to that chap, Albert, and he wanted to do unnecessary surgery. Yeah, exactly. Or exactly the same child, exactly the same scenario, you say, actually, I think we should wait. And they go and see Joe Bloggs up the road, just says, Oh, the Albert chap doesn't know anything. This child clearly needs surgery. Yeah. They have the surgery. The child is so much better. And they go, I went to that chap, Albert. It was horrendous. You know, he didn't even do the surgery that needed to be done. I, and I think and, it's really important to... I think it's really important <laughs> to... say that to the parents and they go, yeah, I can see, you know, that there isn't mm-hmm. an answer. And I'm not, yeah. I haven't got a crystal ball. Mm. I cannot tell you. I can tell you the figures for the outcomes, mm. but I cannot tell you what's going to happen in your child. Exactly. It, it's also quite important to state that it's not cancer or heart disease. You don't absolutely have to have this yeah. operation. You know, that, that's it. But I think it's really important also to recognise and, and to let parents know mm. when there's any controversy or disagreement in yeah. terms of how this should be treated. One of the lines that I often find myself using with parents is I say, what you do with this is one of the easiest ways to start fighting a room full of EMT surgeons. <laughs> and uh, uh, just to give them an idea that actually there isn't a right or wrong answer yeah, and they yeah. may get a different opinion if they yeah. went to see someone other than me. Yeah. yeah. I mean, you, you, just, just when, you, when you started, all of us mentioned that we actually talked to the child first. We're taught, and I think it's the right thing, with an adult, you always say before the patient leaves, is there, is there anything you want to ask me? I, I find it's really important to actually give the last word to the child because provided because the child's of a suitable age because it gives the child a sense of agency a sense of ownership I always say to the child is there anything you want to ask me um, before you go because, and, and very often if I say don't make a decision now sub- subsequent appointments I'm actually quite happy to see the parents on their own because in a way <laughs> I've done every I, I've examined the child you know, and I, I often, yeah, I suppose things have changed since um, COVID that, you know, you can do some remote consultations. I'm quite happy subsequently, having done the initial consultation, if they go away and think about it, to see the parents without the child on the second mm. occasion, depending on whether the child has, has actually expressed uh, his or her expression. You know, I, I, I completely agree, but I rarely think 
with all these Zoom and telephone consultations, it's really important to see the child face to face for the first okay. time. You know, there's un- absolutely, you know, there's this unspoken communication, yeah. the unwritten stuff. There's just so much more to it than you can document. And fundamentally, we still need to examine things. Of course, you do. Yeah. And once you've done that once, and you know what the child's about, then yeah, yeah then you can yeah. do Zoom follow-ups and things. Yeah. Uh, what I would say is that I I'm also in 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 the habit of asking the children if they want any if they have any questions for me. And last week I asked a child, have you got any questions for me? And he thought and said, what's your favourite animal? <laughs> what did you say? What did you say? I said a dog. <laughs> safe answer. You safe answer. answer. I've got a safe ram and a dog. Yes. <laughs> or, or they say, have you haven't got any questions for me? Do you get ice cream after tonsillectomy? And what flavour do you <laughs> yeah. get? So, and, and I always say, Yes, ice cream is compulsory. That's a good question. Uh, as is the dog. Right. The vague roar you can hear in the background is the noise that the oven is making because dinner is about to be served up in the Bateman mansion. So I'm going to have to draw this conversation to a close. So Dave Albert, thank you very much indeed. Thank you very much. Mike Crow, thank you very much. Thank you. Mike. And Neil, thank you for having us. And thank you. Thank you. Yeah, we're the screen. <laughs> well, thank you for downloading and listening to this podcast. I hope you found it helpful and I hope this is going to be the first of a nice long new series. I've been Mike Saunders and these are the Bapo Podcasts. <laughs>